Good morning. My name is Chris White, and I'm here to uh, share a passage of scripture with you this morning, but I'm so delighted to be here. My family and I have been attending faith for many years, serving in various capacities. I'm currently on the welcome team and just love being able to connect with so many of you during that time. So thank you for your ear, and if you could just join me, please, um, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in the human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word. Thanks, Chris. Good morning to each of you. I'm glad that you are are here today in worship. When you think of Christmas, what is the first word that comes to your mind? When you think of Christmas, what is the first word that comes to your mind? to your mind. For some of us, no doubt, uh, joyful words come to mind. We think of things like family, traditions. We think of celebration. We think of music. That last one is my daughter Rose's word. She started listening to Christmas music two months ago. When When the weather starts turning cool, she puts Christmas music on Pandora, listens to it for four or five months. That's her. Maybe for you, it's something else. No doubt for others of us, uh, it's not really a joyful word that comes to mind. It might be a more word associated with sorrow, loneliness, grief, regret. While everybody else is celebrating, you have a loss or a potential loss that's first and foremost in your mind. Whatever the case, we hope that this year during our Advent Sermon Series that there will be other words that you have available to you that come to your mind when you think of Christmas. Whether this is a season of joy or sorrow for you, uh, these are words that can give you perspective on whatever you're going through. This Advent, we're going to explore several passages in the New Testament that reveal the heart of God at the very first Christmas. It's really interesting when you look at the birth narratives and the gospel, uh, they focus on what was happening on earth. In Bethlehem, the manger, the shepherds, the, the uh, 
the angels that appeared. But when you look at the epistles, which were the letters that were written to the churches and church leaders of that day, they tend to focus on what was happening in heaven, in the heart and mind of God when Jesus became one of us. They tell us about the motives and the rationale and the attitude of God when Jesus came to earth. And so each passage we're going to study this this Advent season will give you a word that you may have not thought to come to mind, may not come to mind to you now when you think of Christmas, but it's it's a word that was really on the heart and the mind of God at the first Christmas. And so today we consider the passage that was just read, Philippians 2, 1 through 11, and this is a passage that reveals that humility was on the heart and mind of God the Son when he became one of us. <clears throat> and uh, in light of this passage, I hope that humility will be the f- one of the first words that come to your mind when you think of Christmas. You think, ah, humility. Trust that will come to your mind. I want to set up the context of, of this passage because it really informs how we, we hear what Paul says. It's a very familiar passage to many of us, very powerful passage, but the context really sets it up. In chapter 1, Paul talks about his great affection for the Philippian church. They had stood with him from day one. He came and shared the gospel with them, and they immediately entered into this partnership. They, too, were part of uh, believing the gospel and spreading the gospel. And even when Paul and Silas were beaten publicly and thrown in jail in Philippi, they didn't abandon him. They stood with him. And now Paul is in Rome, and he's in prison, and he writes this letter to the Philippians, and he's full of new joy for them because they continued to stand with him. They sent Epaphroditus, one of his trusted friends, to encourage him, and he brought a gift. It was a poor church, and yet they sent Paul a gift more than once to meet his needs. And so Paul was full of joy when he wrote this letter, and yet there was a concern there was something in the, in the church at Philippi that threatened to sabotage their participation in the gospel. And the threat was disunity. Paul is concerned that their disunity or potential disunity would, uh, would threaten their participation. And so the main challenge in the body of this letter is found in Philippians 1.27 and following I want to read just one verse, Philippians 1, 27. Paul writes this. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And so living, uh, living a life worthy of the gospel means living in unity. And without their unity, their witness for the gospel would be sabotaged. But with their unity, if they were united, they could withstand anything. They say, they'll go on to say, you can even suffer the way I've suffered if you have this unity. And so uh, because Paul was passionate about the gospel, he was passionate about their unity. And I dare say all of us want unity, right? Who doesn't want unity? There's a sense in which we, of course we want unity. We want to walk side by side. We want to encourage and strengthen each other no matter what. 
But like the Philippians, we need to understand that our unity as a church, our unity is based on a common commitment to our mission, the mission of proclaiming the gospel. It's not enough to be unified in the sense that we all believe the same facts about the gospel. Jesus died for our sins. He rose again on the third day. That's essential, but it's not enough for true unity. True unity is based on a common commitment to the mission of the gospel because we all desperately want our family members, our friends, people in our workplace, others in our community to know Christ. That's the thing that can give us true unity as a church. We're concerned for them. We want them to experience the same freedom that we experience. We want them to have abundance of life. And so a church won't have genuine biblical unity with lesser commitments. And so that's the context. And now we wonder, well, how can we pull that off? What's it going to require of us to have that type of of unity? Well, in chapter 2, Paul says the thing it requires is humility, humility of mind. And this is rather counterintuitive. You think, what what does humility have to do with unity? Well, until you've experienced it, you'll never get it. But when you have true humility among a group of people, you will experience a type of unity that is palpable. It's, tan- it's tangible. And so in verses 1 through 4 of Philippians 2, Paul says that our unity requires great humility. It just requires great humility. And he first appeals to their common experience in the body of Christ, in the, the richness of fellowship that they have had. And so he writes in verse 1, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, it could be translated, since there is encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. And so he piles up these words, right? He says, since there is, you've experienced such great encouragement in Christ, since the love you've experienced in Christ has brought such deep comfort since you've, ex- you've participated in the Spirit's work in such powerful ways, since there's such affection and compassion in the body of Christ, Paul says, this is my appeal to you. Verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Isn't it striking how unashamedly Paul says, I want you to complete my joy. I don't want any gaping holes when it comes to my joy. Why would he say that? Well, joy is this deep satisfaction in God and his ways. And so there's nothing selfish about wanting to experience more joy. Uh, uh, Joy is one of those emotions. It's a God-given spiritual emotion that nourishes our souls. And so joy is one aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit himself produces joy in our lives. And so Paul's joy would be complete if the Philippians were fully united for the sake of the gospel. You may have noticed he picked up some of those phrases that we saw in in chapter 1. He said, being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and with one mind. When it came to things that really mattered, the unity of the church and the eternal destiny of people, 
Paul said we should be exactly alike. Of course, in Philippi, as in here in our fellowship, on peripheral issues, there are all sorts of, dif- of differences. We have different convictions, different opinions on a lot of different things. But on the, the central thing that the church is called to do is to share the gospel and therefore have unity that reflects the gospel. We should, we should be exactly alike. And notice in verse 3 and 4 how all in Paul wants the Philippians to be in their unity. In both verses, he gives a negative command, avoid this, and then a positive command, embody this. And so in verse 3, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. He mentions selfish ambition. Uh, Paul himself had experienced the ugliness of selfish ambition when he was in prison in Rome. <clears throat> it's kind of a bizarre scenario, but there were some, there were other Christians in Rome who viewed Paul as his rival. They were competitive when it came to sharing the gospel. He said that it was self, out of selfish ambition they preached the gospel. Uh, amazingly, Paul's attitude was, whatever, as long as Christ is preached, that's all I care about. But they had selfish ambition when it came to the gospel. And Paul wanted the Philippians to avoid that poison in their fellowship. And so he commanded them, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. It's pretty all, that's, that's pretty all in. Do nothing from selfish ambition. So what does this mean for us? Well, it means that we are never, we are never to look down on others in the church and trash them as inferior, either in our mind or in our words. We are never to have that mind toward one another. And, and the, the, uh, we need to just go ahead and lay it out there. Sometimes you will be morally superior to another person. You will be more intelligent than another person. There will be times when you are right. Paul's saying never do anything from selfish ambition or conceit. We never have a right to treat others out of a spirit of pride. And we'll see why that's the case. It's a very good reason why that's the case. We'll see it in a minute. But, Paul says, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And so instead of conceit and pride, humility. Treat others with humility. And that involves believing, not merely pretending, but believing that others are more significant than you are. What does that mean? Well, look at verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so we instinctively look to our own interests and our own desires. If, if, we have, if we have needs, we seek to meet them. If we have desires, we look around and say, hey, can I satisfy this desire? We naturally look to our own interests. Paul said we should be on the lookout for others' interests. We should look to the interests of others, their needs, and even at times their desires. And so you probably notice there's nothing weak or half-hearted about Paul's challenge to the Philippians. He's not saying here, Try to be a little nicer sometimes if you feel like it, right? There's not that, no tone of that at all. 
He has this fierce, this fierce humility, this fierce attention to each other. Sacrificial humility, have the same mind, the same love, no selfish ambition or conceit. In humility of mind, count others more significant. Look out for the interests of others. How does that sit with you? Do you love that? Oh, I love what Paul's telling me there. If you're like me, sometimes in the depths of your soul, you have this temptation to find all sorts of exceptions and loopholes and great reasons why this doesn't really apply in this situation. If we're not careful, we'll end up concluding what Paul's really saying here is we should be humble toward our friends, but we have every right to be harsh and unkind to our enemies. But that's the exact opposite of what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Matthew 5, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Now, I should acknowledge that Paul obviously isn't saying that we should never set boundaries. He's not saying we should never address bad behavior, bad motives, bad doctrine, He's definitely not saying you should just let anybody bully you or manipulate you who wants to, but all those things can be addressed in humility. And when it happens, many times, there's no guarantee, but when it happens, it does something supernatural in that situation. Our tendency is to address those things in pride, and the casualty always is unity always sabotages unity in a family, in a church, in a workplace, everywhere. And so why is Paul so insistent that humility is at the heart of unity, which is essential for our mission? Well, beginning in verse 5, we see that Paul actually believed that Jesus is the standard for our humility. This is a staggering thing. He's saying Jesus is the standard for our humility. And what he tells us here is that humility was uppermost in Jesus' mind at the very first Christmas. He first talks about his pre-incarnate humility, his humility before he became one of us, and then his incarnate humility. So the humility of, of God is an attribute that is often overlooked. But here it is, verse 5. He said, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. By saying he's in the form of God, it means he has the very attributes of God himself. The NIV translates it being in very nature God. And so even though he had this exalted status, it says he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped as in the sense of being something to be held onto or used for his own advantage. Rather, we read in verse 7, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Now, of course, he says, Paul, he doesn't say that Paul, Paul doesn't say that Jesus emptied himself of something. He didn't empty himself of his divinity. It says he emptied himself by doing something. Namely, 
by taking on the form of a servant. He went from the presence of God, equality with God, that he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. Jesus himself said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When he became one of us, that was on his mind. I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to become a servant. And this is the mind of Christ at Christmas. He was not merely looking out for his own interest, right? If he were, he never would have left the presence of his Father in heaven. But rather, he was looking out for our interests and our crying, your screaming need that we had for a deliverer, for a savior, someone who would free us from our shame and the guilt of our sin and would give us life. And that's what Jesus' humility saw. That's the need he sought to address. Dr. Greg Lanier wrote, at Christmas, God the Son became God the man. God the Son became God the man, and he did it for us so he could die for humanity. It was a pure act of humility. And then verse 8 speaks of the incarnate humility of Christ, the humility Christ had when he was in a flesh and blood body on this earth. Verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Going to the cross is the ultimate expression of his humility, considering us as more significant than himself, looking out for our interests. And as you probably know, the cross is the most painful, most humiliating way you could die in that day. And the Gospels make clear that Jesus was not merely, he was not a victim. His life wasn't taken away from him. He willingly laid down his life for us. Uh, Luke 9.51 says that Jesus resolutely set his face toward Jerusalem so that he could suffer and die for the sins of the people. That is the humility of mind that we are supposed to have among ourselves. This sacrificial, other-centered orientation to life. David Kamara is a, a pastor in Orlando, Florida, and uh, when he preached on this passage, he made the comment that the greater the height, the more impressive the plunge. The greater the height, the more impressive the plunge. And he pointed out that it's very impressive this when people do cliff diving, right? I've never done that, but I did jump off a rock 30 feet into a, a river one time. I swore I'd never do that again. More impressive? is skydivers. I think some of you in this room have done that. I mean, you've, on, you've intentionally jumped out of a plane, right? That's very impressive. There's actually a thing that's even more impressive. It's called space diving. The record is 25 miles. A human jumped out of some craft 25 miles up, came back to Earth, lived to tell about it. The greater the height, the more impressive the plunge. But Jesus, he made the greatest plunge possible. The highest of heights, the presence of God, equality with God. And he took the plunge to the lowest of lows. Death on a cross, crucified between two criminals. And he did it willingly, on purpose, 
He did that for us. That's the humility. That's the humility of mind we're supposed to have among ourselves. Our Lord and Savior, our shepherd, took the greatest plunge possible for us. If we call ourselves disciples, then we will learn from him to take a similar plunge for one another. There's nothing easy about this. There's nothing simple about this many times. That's the mind we're supposed to have among ourselves. And since he was legitimately superior to us in every way, and yet he put our interests above his own, we are never justified. We are never justified in being prideful toward one another. Jesus is the standard for our humility. And remember why this is is worth it, because our unity gives credibility to the gospel. And when you think about it, that humility is at at the center of the gospel. This is the message. Jesus took this plunge for us. He was equal with God, and yet he humbled himself. He became one of us so that he could die for us. He paid for our sin on the cross. If that's the message we have for, we hold forth, that's the way we should live our lives. We should live our lives saying, I'm, I'm, I've got brothers and sisters, and I want, to, I want to put their needs first. I never treat them with pride. If we treat each other with pride, the way we think, the way we speak, the way we act, people will look at us and say, why would I want that? Their lives contradict the message that they're holding forth. But with that humility and with that unity, the gospel has a deep, deep credibility. People are open. People might listen. Many will receive. Well, Paul doesn't stop with Jesus' humility. He goes on to describe God's response to Jesus' humility. Verses 9 through 11, therefore, in light of his humility, even death on the cross, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so God responds to Jesus humble servanthood by exalting him to the highest possible status. He says he gave him a name which is above every name. You wonder, well, what name is that? Well, it's interesting. Verse 10 is actually a a quotation from Isaiah 45, 23, when Yahweh, the God of Israel, he says, of himself, he says, to me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. And so Paul is saying that God has bestowed on Jesus his very name, Yahweh. Therefore, at the end of time, there will be universal acknowledgement that Jesus is Lord. There will be no exceptions. There will be a day when everybody bows the knee and confesses Jesus is Lord. And the implication for us, one of them should be very obvious, if on that day, Every single one of us in the room, every single person on earth will bow and declare Jesus is Lord then, then we should submit to him as Lord now 
And part of that submission involves imitating his humility. Of course, that's who you are, Jesus. I'm your disciple. Teach me to be humble as well. Jesus' exaltation illustrates that no no expression of humility goes unnoticed. Jesus himself said in Luke 14, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. God the Father noticed Jesus' humility. He also notices our humility. He really does. And so this season... When you think of Christmas, I pray that one of the first words that comes to your mind is humility, Christmas, humility. And when it does, I hope it takes you a couple of different directions. Number one, I hope it takes you to worship. I hope it takes you to worship Jesus. Worship him for his humility. Who knew that God himself is humble in heart? He's so humble that he didn't, he didn't, he didn't uh, regard equality with God, something to use for his own advantage, but he laid it aside, became one of us, went as low as you could possibly go, crucified as a criminal on a Roman cross. The gospel is just, it's about the humility of Jesus. We will never, for all eternity, we will never get tired of praising God, worshiping Jesus for his humility. And so let it take you to humility. He died for you. He died for me. And if you're not yet a a follower of Christ, I would just encourage you, uh, don't don't ignore ignore this thought. Uh, uh, Let your eyes be open to the fact that he took the plunge for you. He really did. He wants you to have freedom from the guilt and the shame of your sin. He wants you to have an abundant type of life. And it's available through faith in him. So let it take you to worship. And second, when you you think about humility, let your mind go to your own habits of humility or the lack thereof uh, in, in either case. But notice whether you instinctively and habitually look out for the interests of others or whether you mainly or exclusively look out for yourself and trust that other people, somehow somebody's going to take care of them. Do you treat your family or your house people in your household with humility? How about your coworkers? How about your neighbors? How about other people in this church and in the body of Christ? Do you think humble thoughts about them? wanting the best for them? Do you speak humble words to them? Do you speak humble words about them to others? The psalmist said, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable. And so what are your habits of humility? And when you find yourself, I say when, not if, when you find yourself deficient uh, in humility, there's no need for self-condemnation. There's no value in that. There's, not, there's nothing uh, spirit godly about that. But rather, if you're convicted about a lack of humility, admit it to God, refix your eyes on Jesus and his humility, and let it melt your heart. My Savior, he was humble toward me. 
oh God, help me be humble toward others. And as you, as you uh, grow deeper and deeper in your habits of humility, uh, notice the unity that you experience. It, it's striking. Notice the humility you experience toward people to whom you're humble. Again, in the family and in the church. And just remember that it is worth it. It is absolutely worth it for the sake of Christ and his gospel. Father, we ask that you would give us the mind of Christ. Oh, what an amazing thing that he laid aside his heavenly prerogatives and he became one of us. The son of God became a man. And uh, we pray, God, that this season that we would remember that humility. We pray we would be intrigued and fascinated by the humility of Christ. We pray, God, that you would give us, that you would melt away our pride, the hardness of heart that we have toward various people, various groups of people. We pray, God, that we might imitate Christ. We might let the Spirit give us the, the humility of Christ this season and show us that it's a, a joyful endeavor. We do pray that you would find great joy in us and in this church, in the body of Christ, as we stand together in one spirit, one mind, for the faith of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.